dependence that we realize we must have upon you in all things, but especially in our in our growth. And so, Lord, just help us. I pray that the truth from your word that we look at would be a, an aid for us as we seek to grow and continue to grow in the discipline of shepherding our hearts. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're going to jump right into our study this morning. There's quite a bit to cover. We're going to talk about humility and trembling before God's word. How do we cultivate a heart that views God's word as we ought? Uh, Very rarely does the believer simply just wake up one day, I love Jesus, and now all I ever want to do is read my Bible, and it's always worshipful, and I never have to fight anything within me. I just wake up, and there's this immediate impulse that I, I can't even get to my cup of coffee because all I want to do is open my Bible. That's, that's not always the case. There are seasons where it may feel that way, but what can be a particular challenge is what do you do with your heart? What do you do with your, your inner man when you are in those seasons where you don't feel that way? And we're going to look at what God commends, what God, what catches his attention uh, in the heart of man so that we might pursue that kind of heart when we shepherd our hearts with God's word. So we're going to shepherd our hearts. We're going to learn how to shepherd our hearts to shepherd our hearts. (laughs) How do do we direct our hearts in how to direct our hearts well? And I want to do that by starting in Isaiah 66. So this is just going to be kind of the intro portion of our outline. And we're going to sit here for a little bit, and then we'll work a little bit quicker through the rest of our outline. But turn in your Bible to Isaiah 66. Isaiah's writing to Judah. When we talk about the chronology of the Old Testament, you remember that Judah and Israel had split, and uh, Isaiah is writing to the southern tribes, Judah and Benjamin. He's watched the northern tribes rebel against Yahweh, and over the course of his life, he watches them succumb to the Assyrian captivity in 722 BC. And the message he receives from God is twofold. It's one of both impending judgment for Judah's disbelief and disobedience, but it's also the promise of God's faithfulness to his promises to his people, that what Israel could not do on their own, in their own hearts, God is going to bring that to pass through the work of the coming Messiah. And when we come to our passage in in chapter 66, God is actually speaking to his people about their worship of him. In verse 3, Isaiah speaks of sacrifices, and we're seeing God address his people on their worship of him, and it's actually a rebuke for their hypocrisy. Yet in the first two verses of chapter 66, we see what, what pleases God. So God is giving, the, the entirety of the context is that God is giving a rebuke, an indictment against them for their hypocrisy. But in contrast to how they are functioning, he points out the commendable virtues of what it looks like to worship him sincerely. What is worship that he accepts, worship that catches his attention And so in the first two verses of chapter 6, we see what pleases God. In verse 3 and what follows, we see what garners Yahweh's attention in a negative sense. But in verses 1 and 2, particularly verse 2, we see what captures his attention in a a positive sense. So look at Isaiah 66, verses 1 and 2. Verse 1, thus says Yahweh, 
Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. Where then is a house that you could build for me and where is a place that I may rest? For my hand made all these things. Thus, all these things came into being, declares Yahweh. But to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. Well, God in this passage puts forth his greatness to his people, and then he describes what catches his attention, what catches his gaze. You see God's greatness in the first verse and a half, and then you see what catches his gaze. I'm having a, give me one second just to. Okay, that should be better. God's greatness and God's gaze. And this is so crucial when we think about cultivating a right reverence for God, cultivating a right love for God, a passion and a commitment to Yahweh as our God. What we know and what we believe about him will dictate how you live your life for him. And God understands that, obviously, and so he puts forth huge, magnificent, majestic realities about who he is in really a wonderful, succinct way. And then he calls for what that should look like, how how that should impact practically the believer's life, the, the, the Yahweh fearer's life. We'll talk about this a little bit more in just a few moments, but what A.W. Tozer says is absolutely right. He says, what comes into your minds, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Nothing else will have a greater impact or bearing on your life than what you actually believe about God. And it's one thing to simply say words about God that you think you believe, but what you actually believe is what will impact your life. Not what you say about God has the biggest impact on your life, but what you believe about God. That will have the biggest bearing on your life. And in verse 1, in the first half of verse 2, we see a succinct explanation regarding God's greatness that should just really take our breath away. God is like nothing, like none or nothing else. He is supremely great. He says, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. God's glorious person, it, he, feel, he fills eternity. He fills infinity. He is the omnipresent one, yet he is one who cannot be contained. He's everywhere at once, yet can't be confined. Heaven is his throne. Earth, that which we simply are a speck on. We are a speck on this earth, and it is his footstool. We've said it many times, God spoke, and what didn't exist obeyed him. That's his creative divine power. He simply spoke and things submitted into existence. His power is truly amazing. Verse 2, by his hand all these things came into being. And in verse 1, God contrasts his greatness to us. Where then is a house you could build for me? We're nothing in contrast to God. Not only are we nothing, but everything he has created for his glory and for his use, whatever we are to make of our existence, it is to be centered around his purposes. So it's not even like we're nothing and our life is just this insignificant side thing 
that just gets to go its own way and it's insignificant that way. It's insignificant in that we are completely subject to his sovereign will, his sovereign power, his sovereign purposes, and so on. God is just supreme in absolutely every way. Whatever we're to make of our existence, it's to be around him. It's centered upon him. And that's right. This is not a demeaning statement about us. This is just fact. God is infinite and we're not. We're the created ones. He's the creator. What we cannot even measure, what is beyond calculation for us, the universe, we have no idea how vast it truly is. And yet, contrast to God, he uses imagery like, it's my throne. It's what he sits upon. The Lord here in Isaiah is saying, I'm not impressed by a building. I don't need a building. It can't contain me. My home will not be in a building. All of heaven is my throne. Earth is my footstool. I'm the sovereign one. I am the all-powerful one. I'm the creator of the heavens and the earth. My greatness goes beyond what you could possibly fathom. And yet, in all of God's greatness, there's actually something that catches his attention that captures his gaze, that he's looking for. Look at the second half of verse two. But to this one, I will look. To him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. We must understand God's gaze here. That is, what is God looking for? He's, he's omniscient, he's all-knowing, and yet within his omniscient, there's something that he commends. There's something that he looks favorably upon that catches his attention in a favor- favorable way. What's acceptable to God? What pleases God? What gains his affirming attention? His gaze is attracted to something. We can't build an adequate house for him, but there is something we can do that he commends. He calls us to faith, and that faith has an expression. God has made all things. He is looking for one thing. We can be useful or attractive to God, not to build a place for him, But we can be useful when we focus our hearts where he calls us to direct our hearts. Humility before him. Contriteness of spirit. A right fear of God. A trembling at his word. All of these things are connected to one another. One another. You have such a disposition at the spirit level, the very core of who you are. When you hear his truth, the one who trembles at his word, it It rises to the forefront when everything else fades away. What he has spoken is what matters. What what he thinks, what he commands, who he is, that's what matters to the one who is trembling before the word of God. So let's just think on each of these statements. Humility, contrite of spirit, trembles at his word. Just a, a succinct explanation of each of these, excuse me, what is humility? It's a condition of lowliness or or affliction in which one expresses a loss of power and prestige. Uh, I've, I've heard it, it, um, it, it, it described as thinking of yourself more lowly. And, I, and then I've actually heard a clarification. No, it's not just thinking more lowly of yourself. It's actually true humility. It's just thinking less about yourself. It's not being, true humility is not being consumed by you. It's recognizing a a lowliness of disposition, uh, rightly assessing oneself as ultimately less important or of less significance than those around you. It's a, a consideration or a preoccupation 
outside of yourself. So it's impossible for someone to be humble and yet be stuck in a rut of self-worship, self-exaltation, self-seeking, self-absorption. All of those things are contrary to humility. Why? Because in that moment, you're the one that matters in your own heart. And God's saying, you need to set your self-love aside, your own personal significance, set that aside and be concerned with me. Concern yourself with my greatness. Humble yourself before the Lord. Also, there's the contrite of spirit. Contrite, what does that mean? This is, this is feeling or showing sorrow. It's, it's an inner disposition where there is remorse for sin, a brokenness, an acknowledgement, an agreement with God over your sin. Humility expressed in relation to sin produces a, contrite of a contriteness of spirit where you're just, you're slowed down by the reality of your own sin before a holy God. Contrite of spirit is not one who walks around self-loathing, but one who's actually fixated on Christ. To be contrite of spirit isn't to be a spiritual Eeyore. Well, I just never do anything right, and I'm so bad, and my sin is so, it's just everywhere. That, that probably falls more into the category of a false humility you're making much of how bad, you're making much of yourself in making much of how bad you are. <laughs> we need to agree with God about our sin and be truly broken over it, humbled by it, brought to a lowly state by it. We don't want it. There's no place for it to remain in our life. You might liken it to the, the imagery, uh, a contrite spirit, one who's truly broken over their sin, the wind has been brought out of your sail of sinfulness. My vigor towards sin, I, I just, oh, it's just out of me. I, I, I just don't want that. I'm broken over my sin. And then trembles at God's word. What does one who trembles at God's word look like? His words are our life. We revere his word above all else. God's word is the authority for us in our life. God's word is all we have. It is an anchor for us. It's unchanging. John 15, Jesus says, if you remain in me and my words abide in you, they take root in your heart as you practice them. This one fears God, fears that we would live contrary to God's word and instruction. We understand the authority that is behind God's word, and so we yield and we submit to it. This is what captures God's attention. So here's the question. God's greatness is evident we know that he commends this kind of person. How do we become this kind of person? How do we get there? What does it look like to shepherd our hearts to be one who understands God's greatness in a way that plays itself out in our lives in a manner that captures his attention? How do we get there? It begins with a big view of God, but how practically can we seek to day in and day out grow in this kind of humility and contriteness of spirit, especially when I don't feel like I'm growing or I don't feel like I want to read my Bible. Every day might be a struggle or I go to fellowship group each week. How was your time in the word? It wasn't what it should have been. It wasn't what it should have been. Okay, well, how do you get it to what it should be? Well, I was in God's word, but man, I just felt like I was checking boxes. My heart wasn't engaged. Well, how do you, how do you shepherd your heart to have it be engaged? How do you deny yourself and your feelings 
to actually worship God in that moment when you're doing it because your friends are going to ask and you know it's the right thing to do. You want more than that. How do we cultivate a heart that trembles at God's word? That's what I want to talk about with the rest of our time. The first way is to set biblical expectations. And so now we're settling into the outline. Everybody with me? Set biblical expectations. Sometimes we enter in the Christian walk with just a spiritual high, spiritual, you know, we're pumped up, we're excited, we have seasons of emotional bliss, and then when we don't have that same emotional enthusiasm, we kind of get in this rut. Something's wrong with me. What's going on? How can I recreate that emotional high? I'm doing the same things that I was doing when I first felt that way, and so then what do you start doing? You start grasping for all of these new things to try to interject, to recreate that emotional response that you once had, that emotional bliss. We, we have to recreate it, recreate how we felt in a specific season. That, that's not helpful as it elevates emotions, emotions as the dictators of truth as opposed to leading our emotions to truth. We need to be very careful when we think about shepherding our hearts to be the kind of men that God calls us to be. We cannot let our emotions dictate to us what is truth. I don't really feel like I want to read my Bible. I don't feel like God is good. I don't feel like it's worth it to get up early. Therefore, I need to do something to change how I feel right now. No, what do I need to do in, in relation to that? I need truth. I need to set myself on truth. I need to let truth guide me, not how I feel. This is applicable to far more than just Bible reading, right? This is all of life. Set biblical expectations. And in this, we must first understand your mixed condition. Understand your mixed condition. What is true about us in our salvation? When we think about our new life in Christ, that we're a new creation, the old is gone, the new has come, sometimes we think, well, if the new has come and the old is gone, then I'm just going to be right on track all the time. And yet that's not the reality. That's not what God means. That's not what Paul meant when he talked about the, the old is gone, the new has come, that there's no fight within. The new that has come is a capacity to glorify God. The old that is gone is a depravity towards sin, a disposition towards sin, where it's all you were capable of. So the new that has come, the newness of life, is not one where in this life we're free from struggle against sin. The newness, is, the newness of life is that we have a capacity under God's grace, being reconciled to him no longer under condemnation, to while in this mixed condition, fight sin. We never had that capacity before. That's helpful. That's a helpful understanding for expectations. Because otherwise, what might our expectation be? I'm having to fight for joy to read my Bible? What's wrong with me? Am I even a Christian? <laughs> well, if you have biblical expectations, actually, the fact that you're fighting for joy is evidence you're a Christian. If you weren't, you wouldn't have any desire to fight against your flesh. And as we know from Galatians 5, the flesh sets itself against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. There's going to be a battle. We looked at that last week from 1 Peter 2. 
So understand your mixed condition. The heart is deceitful. Your emotions, they're not trustworthy. How you feel at any given moment, your heart is trying to lead you astray. Jeremiah 17, 9, we all know it. The heart is more deceitful than all else. It's desperately sick. Who can understand it? We need to... We need to realize this when we're fighting those feelings and those impulses in the shepherding of our heart. As I said, Galatians 5.17, the flesh sets its desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. For those who are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. The flesh sets itself against the spirit. This is true. This is true about us in our salvation and our mixed condition We still have to battle our heart. We have to guide our heart where it should go. The natural impulses of our heart are not towards what's pleasing to God. We have to direct it, and we can by the Spirit's power, but we understand there's a battle. If you showed up for your job, and you thought, you know, your customer loves everything you've been doing, and you just thought it was going to be a pleasant conversation, easy sale, slam dunk. And then all of a sudden, they pull out their list of two dozen complaints, not against the product, but against you personally. You do, I was not ready for that today. That was not what I was expecting. And you will probably not respond as well as you hoped when caught off guard by that confrontation. If you woke up and you knew today's going to be a battle, there's a customer really doesn't like me, <laughs> really doesn't like the service they've received. I've got to be on my best to win them to this. You walk into that with a, with a mental readiness to address what needs to be addressed. Well, it's the same with our own hearts. If we wake up each morning on cruise control, yeah, my heart's just going to go where it ought to go. What? It didn't go where it was supposed to go. Now you're trying to catch up and pick up the pieces in your own heart. If you simply understand the nature of the mixed condition, it is so helpful in preparing you, as Peter says, for your flesh that is waging war against you. It's waging war. Oh, shepherding my heart? That's not just a unexpected, natural, easy thing to do. My heart's going to love to be shepherded. No. It's going to want to go back to bed. It's going to want to read the news. Anything to distract myself from actually saturating my heart and mind with truth. This is a fight. It's also a fight that starts in in our mind. Understand. Understand. Biblical expectation. This This is a battle that must be won in the mind. If you simply clean up the externals and don't ever address your heart, your mind, your soul, your inner man, all you'll do is create behavior modification. And the tools that God gives to the believer start at the mind level because it's centered on truth. What we know, what we believe to be true about God. Colossians 3, 1 and 2. If you've been raised up with Christ, what's the instruction? Keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated, seated at where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not the things that are of the earth. That's a call for the Christian to actually take your mind and direct it where it should go. Okay, 
I don't think I'm the only one that has to work through this, but you lay down at night, full day, and your mind is just like unraveling. (laughs) And it's going everywhere it wants to go. That moment when all of a sudden you're alone with your own thoughts, it's almost like a a, um, paper towel roll that's got away from you, and it's just rolling and rolling and unraveling. Okay, we have to, that's our mind. Not only when that moment silences at the end of the day, but that, that's what our mind's propensity is all day long, just to go where it wants to go. And God says, no, pull it in, rein it in, take thoughts captive, and set your mind on this thing. I remember when I was young, and I don't know if this is helpful or just humbling, but when I was young, I would go to bed, f- afraid of the dark, close my eyes, and I would see like graphic, fearful images. I think I had too much Frank Peretti influence, but I would close my eyes and like demonic things. I would see scary monsters and different things. And, and my, my strategy at six, seven, eight years old was I'm going to, maybe it's because I was the youngest child at that point. So it was my job in the home was to change the channel on our giant TV that had buttons um, but I would open my eyes and close my eyes like I'm changing the channel, and I would go, okay, uh, what's a Bible story? I want to think about Jonah, or I want to think, think about Samson, or I want to th- think about Jesus. And I'd open my eyes and try to shut them, um, and every time it was like I'm changing the channel in my mind from these horrible issues that are, or these horrible images that are inducing fear and trying to think on something that's going to be peaceful for my heart. I'm thankful for that impulse. That was a kindness to the Lord that I, that I would want to take thoughts captive that way. And that's so helpful because our minds are going to just go not towards the Lord naturally. And we need to rein them in and set intentionally our minds where they should go. Philippians 4.8, finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, If there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. That's what he's saying on the back end of how to address a heart of anxiety, a heart that is anxious. So understand your mixed condition. Your heart is deceitful. Your flesh is setting itself against the spirit. It's a fight. It starts in the mind. That has to be your expectation. There's going to be a, a, a battle. And recognize that practical sanctification is a process. We've talked about this. Positional sanctification and practical sanctification. Positional sanctification says you were sanctified. You're a holy one. You were set apart unto God for his purposes. That's a positional reality for every believer. You have been sanctified positionally set apart. Practically, you are being sanctified. You are being set apart more and more unto holiness in practice by a growing godliness. A growing godliness. So, 2 Corinthians 3.18, Paul says, but we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image We're being transformed into the glory of the Lord from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. What is Paul saying there? 
upon salvation, you possess a, a capacity to glorify God. There's, there's a reflection of God's glory in you simply as a believer. And that is increasing to a greater glory, a greater holiness that eventually will culminate in reflecting God's glory perfectly in the sense that no more sin. And so what Paul's getting at there is progressive sanctification. There's holiness in your life completely in position because you've been given Christ's righteousness. God sees you through Christ's righteousness. And in practice, you're growing in your spiritual walk, in your practical holiness. Practical sanctification is a process. That's, that's a helpful expectation to understand that you're not today all that you will be someday. It creates a sensibility. You're not caught off guard when you're actually in the fight. Why do I not love God's word like I should? And all of a sudden, now you fix your eyes away from the Lord, away from obedience, and more in a pity party. I just, just a horrible Christian. I'm not as good as this Christian, as opposed to the expectation. We're all in process here. And God just calls me to be in the fight. God will produce the growth in the believer this practical sanctification, we can have confidence that God will accomplish it. Philippians 1.6, God will produce the growth. I'm confident, Paul says, of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. God's going to do this work in his children. He will be faithful. There's also a comfort setting expectations when we think about the growth that God will produce in the believer, that that means it's a fight we can actually win. Whether it's fighting for time in the word, fighting against lust, fighting against covetousness, fighting against idolatry, whatever the fights are in your flesh, you can have confidence because of Christ, because of God's power in you, that you can win it. You can write down 2 Peter 1.3 that his divine power has given us all things pertaining to life and godliness. 2 Peter 1.3, 1 Corinthians 10.13, no temptation has seized you, but what is common to man? God is faithful. He'll provide a way of escape. You won't be tempted beyond what you can bear. And so, we know that God will be faithful. We know that God has granted power. But with that, there's also the reality that you have to be willing to fight. You have to be willing to step into the fight, to battle. Philippians 2.12, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out. That's a call for the believer. Work out your salvation. Live it out. Bring it to fruition. Live it to the fullness of God's intention with fear and trembling, similar Sim, similar, sim, similar, similar imagery to what we saw in Isaiah 66. Humility, trembling, contriteness, fear and trembling. For it is God, where's your confidence in that work? God's at work in you. God's at work in you, both to will and work for his good pleasure. This is God's call for us. God will produce the growth. It's a fight you can win. You have to be willing to fight. Well, how do we get there? A couple strategies. And we see it from Isaiah 66. First, cultivate a right big view of God. How do I, 
how do I get in this fight? Where do I start? Where do I start? I want to battle for worshipful devotion to the Lord, intentional mind renewal. I want to be one who is humble, contrite before the Lord, who trembles at his word. When I wake up in the morning, I would love it if it's not a constant struggle simply to keep my mind on the words that are on the page. Wouldn't that be nice if you could wake up and read your Bible and two seconds into reading, your eyes are looking at the words and your mind is thinking about what awaits you that day, daydreaming about something else. That would be great. How, how do you grow in that practice of self-control, of fearing God's word rightly, of not, hey, I'm doing the right things because I know they're the right things to do, but I want to get to a point where I'm doing the right things because they're the right things to do and growing in doing them the right way, a way that's worshipful. Well, cultivate a right, big view of God. Heaven is my throne. Earth is my footstool. How do we do this? Well, the very thing that you want to grow in being worshipful before the Lord, biblical, biblical worship of truth from God, how are you going to do that? Expose your heart to that biblical truth faithfully. Go to God's word and, and look intentionally. God, as I read today, I know what will aid my worship of you is coming in contact in a, at the heart level with the reality of who you are. And so help give me eyes to see you as you are from your word. Pray that kind of prayer. Incorporate that into your Bible reading. Be intentional. We do all sorts of things with great intentionality. Jerry watches JV girls basketball games four times after they play with the intentionality of being able to be faithful in what he's committed to as a coach. That's great. That is, that is far more than anybody should ever have to endure JV girls basketball. <laughs> but he loves the Lord and he loves his daughter and he loves those girls and he wants to be faithful in what he's committed to do. That's the right kind of attention. That's wonderful, commendable. We should have that same kind of intentionality with God's word. And yet it can be a struggle just simply to get our eyes to go on the pages of scripture. How do we grow? Cultivate a big view of God. Fear him. Understand his greatness. If we truly, truly, at a, at a heart level, were compelled by God's greatness with a right view of it, why would we want to do anything else when we wake up then meet with him. Learn more about him. He is truly the most captivating being, the, the most captivating person in all of creation. He created all of creation. <laughs> of course we should want to know him. How are we going to get there? Cultivate a right big view of God. Conversely, our greatest problem in life is that we think too highly of ourselves. We think too much and too highly of ourselves. Cultivate a biblical view of self. I really, really am prone to thinking I'm a big deal. Our natural impulse is how everything in our lives and those around us impact us. That's, that's what our natural is. This guy, he just cut me off on the road. Does he know what he just did to me? 
well, forget the fact that his wife's in the passenger seat about to have a baby and he's rushing trying to get her there or, you know, got to call that family member. Who knows what's going on in his life? I just assume he's been an inconvenience on me. Why? Because my life is about me and everything that goes on in life is about me. That's our natural impulse. We got to fight that. Set ourself aside. How do we do that? Expose our heart to truth of what God's word has to say about mankind, about us. Have a right view of self. What else? Well, turn to Hebrews 12. Have a big right view of God. Have a a small right view of self. What's going to be our aid in this? Hebrews 12, right after talking about faith and the testimony of those who walked in faith, lived in faith, the author of Hebrews says, therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, that's just men and women who have lived faithfully before the Lord, who have walked in faith, let us also, this is what they did, let us also Lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How do we do that? Set aside sin, lay aside sin, lay aside encumbrance, just entanglements, anything that might slow us down in our running towards what is right. How do we do that? Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Don't grow weary. Don't lose heart. Don't slow down. Don't take your foot off the accelerator. Keep pressing forward. How? Look to Christ. Remember Christ. Keep him before you. What might this look like? Well, lastly, em- embrace biblical practices. So have a right view of God, a right view of self, put Christ at the center of everything, and then be disciplined embracing biblical practices. This is the how do I shepherd my heart to shepherd my heart? It requires shepherding your heart. Embrace biblical practices. Do what you know is right before the Lord. What did we see in Hebrews 12? Repent. Confess sin. Lay aside sin. Put it, ap- put it apart from your life. Remember Christ, what he did for sinners. Let that humble you. Flee actively sin. Take it seriously. Understand how sin dulls your spiritual senses. Don't let Little pet pocket areas of sin exist where I think I control it. I think I contain it. It's over here in the corner. It's not that big of a deal. Nope. Nobody knows or sees. Anyway, it's not hurting anyone. All of those statements, sentiments are lies. Lay aside those sins. Reject self. Okay, this was a typo. And it's 100% my fault. Do not reflect self-dependence. Any guesses on what that word was supposed to be? Reject. <laughs> Reject self-dependence. I apologize. 
100% my fault. Reject self-dependence. What, what do we typically want to do as men? You know, pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. I don't need help. I got this. You know, confessing sin, that's not a manly thing to do. Uh, I'm tempted reaching out for help and telling somebody, I'm really tempted right now. Could you pray for me? Could you encourage me? That's not a manly thing to do, right? How foolish of us to think that way. God's kindness to us is that we don't have to navigate the Christian life alone. His good intention is that we do encourage one another. We do spur one another on. We do pray for one another. We do show love towards one another. We do admonish one another. That's God's intention for us. That's, that's the call for us to love one another. So reject self-dependence. Look to God. Depend upon him. Embrace God's means of grace. I can't tell you how many times I've had conversations with people who are struggling with sin. They're disheartened in their fight. Tom and I have talked about this. We've counseled people together. I've heard him tell people this, where they are fighting sin. They think they're fighting sin. They're wanting to fight sin verbally, but then they reject and don't embrace God's means of grace in helping them. I just, I just am so sick of this sin. I'm really repentant, big tears. I just never want this to happen again. Okay, what are, what are triggers that lead you down a path of temptation? Well, this, this, and this. Okay, when that happens, call me. Then we get a, a call two weeks later. I've been drowning in this sin for a week and a half. You never called me. Yeah, I didn't want to. <laughs> but I'm never going to do it again. I'm so sorry. I just, I just don't understand why this has such a, a foothold on me. Well, you're... You're hard-hearted, you're stubborn, and you're rejecting God's means of grace to help you in a number of different ways. Embrace God's means of grace. Reject self-dependence. Look to God. Look to his means of grace within the church, within scripture, within even the biblical practices of prayer. Go to the Lord. Make that a part of your life. 1 Thessalonians 5.16, rejoice always, pray without ceasing. That doesn't mean mumble prayers at every moment. That means pray in all, in all circumstances. When things are going well, praise the Lord. When things are hard, cry out to the Lord. Have a, a heart disposition that is communicating and dependent and looking to the Lord constantly. Read your Bible. It's not, not complicated. Bring your sin-loving heart, self-loving heart to the word of God and trust God to work through his word. This is where you, you fight those emotions that in dry spells where you might feel, I'm, I'm reading God's word, I'm just not getting a lot out of it. Really? How do you know? <laughs> you think you're the judge of God's fruitfulness of his word in your life, you get to make that determination? You have no idea how God is going to use your heart's exposure to his truth faithfully day in and day out over an extended period of time in your life. Julie and I have talked about that frequently. Uh, I've made those kinds of statements. I'm just not getting a lot of out of God's word right now. When Caleb passed away, 
and God's word just came to mind, he used preaching, instruction, exposure to God's word, devotion times in our life in ways that really saved our sanity, that we just didn't even have a capacity of how he was going to use his word in our life up until that point. So just don't be so arrogant to think that you can make the determination of if God is faithful and if God's word is meaningful and powerful in your life. He says it is. And so be faithful and trust him. Just read your Bible. Meditate on scripture also. That's a lost discipline for us. Psalm 1. Blessed is the man. I'll read it. Because I always get the order wrong, the first part. Sitting, walking. No, sitting, standing, walking. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the path. See, I messed it up. Walk in the path of counsel of sinners. Ah. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of Yahweh, or in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. That one, he will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. And in whatever he does, he prospers. Meditation. Have intentional intentionality in keeping God's truth on your mind throughout the day. So read your Bible, yes, but read it with intentionality so that it's on your heart, it's on your mind throughout the day. Even if that's one statement that you write down on your notes app in your phone and just go, this was, this was really insightful, this was really helpful for me this morning, I just want, I'm going to come back to this periodically throughout the day and just set my mind on this truth from God's word. Meditate. Be disciplined in that practice. And then in all of this, trust, trust God. Trust God. He will do his work in you as you embrace his graces. Be faithful. Be consistent. Don't throw in the towel because your emotions don't fall in line as quickly as you'd like. That's easy to do. It's easy to get disheartened, to grow faint-hearted. Man, I've been reading my Bible every day for the last three days, and I don't feel any different. It hasn't gotten any easier. It's actually gotten harder. Wow, good job. Try 30. Try 300. Do you really think the Lord will disappoint you if you yield to him, if you humble yourself before him? No, just, just be faithful and trust the Lord. He does not ask us, to control the outcome of our lives. He calls us to be faithful in the moment in our lives. So just wake up. What does faithfulness look like this morning? What is a heart that fears God above all else? A heart that fears God is going to come to him despite how you feel about God in that moment because you recognize his greatness. All right. What questions do you have? Comments? Add-ons? Psalm 1. Sorry. Yep, Psalm 1. Nothing? 
All right. You're saving it all for Tom. I'll pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for these men, this time together. And um, Lord, I, I know I am, I am putting truth before men who live this truth so well. And so, Lord, I pray that this morning, uh, these things that I know, I know we know and love and desire, and yet none of us are all of what we ought to be in them. I pray that you would help us to persist, that you'd help us to continue to grow in faithfulness. Pray that we would fear you. Pray that we would be faithful before you, that we never, never slow down in running the race that you have for us. And Lord, that we would remove every, everything that would hinder us in pursuing you. Thank you for the immense glory and privilege that it is to live for your glory, to live at peace with you. And Lord, we love you. We know that is only because of Christ. And so we praise you. Help us, help us today to live lives that are worshipful. Help us to shepherd our hearts faithfully in worshipful ways that you would be glorified. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.